Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we'll start in verse 15, so about the middle of your, of the chapter there. I want to remind you, um, as we're talking about church, talking about Rediscover Church, I want to remind you what we said this morning, that church membership is. Um, we, we said it's several things, but one thing that we said it is, is from Matthew 16, binding and loosing. Church membership is the church affirming that the profession of faith that the person has made is genuine, that they are converted. Based on their profession of faith in their life, we say this person is is very clearly born again. We bring them into membership in the body of Christ. So then what about the opposite of that? What, What about the opposite? What about when someone is a member of a church, meaning at some point in time they were affirmed as a born again believer, but since then they have lived their life in such a way that that's now not certain anymore. They have either denied the faith or they have um, disregarded their salvation. They've done one of those two things. They have either um, denied the faith and turned their back on Christ or they have just completely walked away from Christ with their lifestyle. What do we do in that case? Well, we do something called that's been traditionally called church discipline. Church discipline. If church membership is bringing members into the church by affirming their salvation, church discipline is the opposite. It's the opposite. It's removing members who have disregarded their salvation. Now, that gets into a lot of hard situations, so we have to talk about what that means. Because very often, people jump to conclusions about what that is and end up assuming a lot of stuff about it that is not correct. I was in a Bible study in middle school. There was, it was before I was a Christian um, in middle school, there was this guy in my middle school class who um, became a Christian, or sort of. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, he was one of those guys that got really serious about Christ for about two weeks, and then after that, he was off living his life for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, that, he, he did that, and, um, and so he started a Bible study in the library at the end of the day, and so about seven or eight of us would go and go to this Bible study, and the, the second meeting, um, we, we were sitting around the table about to start the Bible study, and one of my friends was there, and he and I got into kind of an argument. And then he, um, my, my friend Michael, looked at me and just said, J- just shut up. And he just said something like that, something, you know, just a simple, you know, mean word, but, but nothing bad. And the leader of the Bible study, his name was Zach, it, when, when Michael said that, there was like a gasp. <gasps> and, and Zach just kind of looked at Michael and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to sit at that table over there. And so Michael had to get up and go sit at the table over there, and he just put his head down while we did a Bible study. 
Most people, when they first hear about what's called church discipline, that's what they assume it's like. And that's not what it's like at all. That's not what it is. So let's look at what Jesus said when he laid out the process for for what the opposite of church membership is. Uh, Matthew 18, I'm going to read verses 18, uh, verse 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, who, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Two chapters down from what we looked at this morning when we talked about binding and loosing, that language of binding and loosing pops up again. Jesus presents a process within the church by which you deal with someone when they are found in sin. When they're found in sin. The process has three steps. Three steps. In regards to these three steps, they aren't necessarily a one and done. Sometimes each step takes multiple attempts, but the first step is what we want to focus on. We hope and pray that the first step is as far as this ever goes. That's what we hope. Um, So step number one, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's step one. When, When someone in the church is found in sin, that's step one. It says if, um, but, but in the Greek, it's actually when, if, when. It can be the same word. If, when your brother sins against you, the word if can be the same as when. Um, simply, your brother is going to sin against you. People in this church are going to sin against you. We're going to sin against each other. It's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. You're going to sin against one another in the pew. It's going to happen. So the question is, do we confront a person every time they sin against you? Um, well, sort of, but not exactly. Let, let, let's look at it. Um, first and foremost, live your life in such a way. Live your life in such a way that, that you don't have to be confronted about your sin. Live your life in, with such sensitivity to your own sinfulness that when you sin, you recognize it and go apologize before they have to confront you. L- live your life that way. But here's the deal. We think it sounds crazy to have to confront someone when they sin because we only think of small sins. So, so we think, do I, ha- do I really have to confront someone every time they say something that hurts my feelings? Well, probably not. Honestly, just learn to let those things go. J- just learn to let those things go. You don't have to go confront them every time they say something that hurts your feelings. I mean, it's kind of like disciplining a child um, I, I've had to learn a lot about this as, I, as I've become a parent. Adrian and I have talked about um, what disciplining had and over the years will look like. Um, here's the deal. You don't spank a child for failures and mistakes. You don't do that. If they spill a glass of milk, you don't spank them for that. If they um, you know, fail a math test, you don't spank them for that. You just clean up the milk and you work um, to teach them the math better. You spank a child 
for deliberate disobedience. For deliberate disobedience. They heard exactly what you told them to do, and they did the opposite because they think in their five-year-old mind they understand the universe better than mommy and daddy do, so they don't obey what their parents said. That's when you discipline them because they need to learn they're not the sovereign of the universe. We don't confront somebody in church over failures and mistakes. We graciously help them clean up the milk. We confront people for where they have intentionally meant to sin without caring about it. There are times when confronting the person about how they have sinned is necessary. There are times when that's necessary. There's actually a debate um, in verse 15 here. Um, <clears throat> most English translations put, if your brother sins against you. There's actually a debate whether or not that against you is in the original Greek, which is what Matthew would have written. If it just says, if your brother sins, go to and tell him his fault, or if your brother sins against you. There's a debate there which way that should be translated into English translations. Um, it, it, which one it is, we don't know. Um, I tend to lean toward probably... All circumstances, not just when they sin against you because of other passages in the Bible. Other passages are clear. You confront people in their sin, not just when they sin against you, but when they sinned. That, that's what other passages say. So what kind of sin do we confront? If somebody sins in church, what kind of sin do we confront? Well, first of all, let me just give you a few. Sins against you, sins against us, we confront, work through, and forgive rather than just casting it aside and holding a grudge. We, we need to work through those things. If you hold a grudge against people in the church for 10 years, that boils up into something else that's no good for you, them, or the church as a whole. We confront direct violations of the commands of Scripture. Direct violations of the commands of Scripture. So we don't confront something the Bible doesn't call sin just because we don't like it. We, we don't confront something the Bible doesn't call sin just because we don't like it. Examples of this, something small like, you know, a, a, a youth wears shorts to church on a Sunday. We don't confront that. Just get over that. We, something big, like um, if you found out someone isn't vaccinated against COVID, okay, that's not a sin. That's not a sin. You may not like that they're not, but that's not your business. We confront verifiable sins. So if you, a sin has to be verifiable to, to confront it. So if you come up to me and tell me, hey, I heard so-and-so is having an affair. Okay, I'm not confronting them about that unless I have actual proof that they're having an affair. I will pray for them for the strength of their marriage and that these claims, if they're true, would be exposed to me. But I will not confront them until actual proof that that, that, that is the case. Otherwise, it's just hearsay. It's just hearsay. We can, sins have to be, sins need to be serious to confront them. We don't have a serious meeting with a person every time they have a bad attitude, even though grumbling is a sin. We confront serious sins that are detrimental to that person and detrimental to the church to continue living in them. And we confront public sins, public sins. If a sin is public, it must be dealt with publicly. Example of this would be a pastor who cheats on his wife. You confront that publicly. Something that is verifiable and is out in the open. Oftentimes the issue has to be dealt with, in, in that case, different than, than, than how Jesus lays out here. There is another example in Scripture that we're going to look at of church discipline in a minute in 1 Corinthians 5. That's a sin that's much more public than, than what Jesus is talking about here. It's 1 Corinthians 5, 
Um, Paul, in that case, it's such a serious sin that Paul tells um, the Corinthians, just, just go ahead and jump to step three and, and, and give the guy over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh. We're going to look at that text in a minute. Um, Adrian and I's church in Louisville, um, one Sunday we showed up and we were just shocked because um, one of our members in the church um, was a professor at my seminary. He was a missions professor at the seminary. Um, he was one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my life. Like, like just phenomenal preacher. Um, anytime he preached, I made sure I was there because just one of the best preachers I've ever heard. I went on mission trips with this guy. He, he led a ministry down to, to different parts of the world. One specific spot was Ecuador. So I went on a mission trip to Ecuador, and this guy kind of led the trip. Well, it came out sometime um, before that service on that Sunday that he had been having a years-long cross-country affair with one of his former students. He had been preaching phenomenal sermons during that time. He had been leading mission trips during that time. But anytime he was in a different part of the country for a conference, he met up with this girl. So we showed up on church for one Sunday, and the whole morning was about the fact that we had to do church discipline with this guy. Um, he had been called to repent several times. He had not repented, so we had to remove him from membership. We had to go through that process that Jesus lays out here. It was a very hard Sunday. Very hard Sunday. We notice about step one, you, we go and confront the person privately. We confront them privately. When it's not a public and heinous sin like that professor, we confront sins that are, um, we, we, we confront it privately. We, we confront sins that are direct violations of scripture, serious and verifiable, and we do it privately. We do it privately. We do not do so in an open meeting for all to hear. Like if I call for announcements at the end of the church service, you don't stand up and like call out the sinner next, next to you in the row. That's not how we do it. We go to them privately, privately. And the hope and the goal of this is that they repent. Look at verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. You go and confront them. If he listens to you, it's over. You, you hope he listens to you. That's the goal. We do not confront the sinner to make them feel bad, though that may happen. We do not confront the sinner to judge and condemn them, though they will probably feel that way. That, that's the thing some people ask about this process, about confronting sin. Um, doesn't it violate Matthew 7.1? Flip back to Matthew 7.1, just a few pages back in your Bible. You know this verse, but let's look at the verses that follow it. Doesn't it violate this? Matthew 7.1. One of the most well-known and most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible by the world. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Doesn't it violate that? No. First of all, Jesus says both of these in the book of Matthew, and so they can't contradict each other if they're um, in the Bible, but also in the exact same book spoken by the exact same person. But our culture has taken Matthew 7.1 to mean that you can never give any criticism to anyone about anything. You can never say anything that is going to hurt someone's feelings. That is assumed to be judging. That's not what this verse is talking about. Read the, rest of, read the verses following it. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, 
but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's that saying? He's saying, judge, but don't judge hypocritically. That is, if your brother's got a speck in his eye, help him get it out. But make sure you can see properly to do it, right? Make sure the log's not in your own eye. If I've got a speck in my eye, please help me get it out because it's going to irritate my eye. But take the log out of your own eye first. That, that's what he's saying. Don't do it hypocritically. Even down in, farther down in, verse, um, in chapter 7, look at 15 through 20. Actually, 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree that bears good fruit, um, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. What's he, verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruit. What's that say? It's saying... Not to condemn and criticize somebody, but it is saying you will recognize who a person is by the fruit their life bears. If you want to call that judging, fine, but, but, but that's what Jesus says to do. 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians in more detail in a minute, but um, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, this is what Jesus says. Or this is what Paul says, I'm sorry, which spoken through the inspiration of Jesus. But um, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? What? Paul, you're not supposed to judge. Haven't you read what Jesus said? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? When you join a church, you're giving the members of that church, the right to hold you accountable to the faith that you claim to believe. If you want to call that judging, do it, but it's the responsibility of those in the church laid out in Scripture. We confront people so that they might see their sin and repent. That's the goal. It's not to criticize. It's not to make people feel bad. It's not to be holier than thou. It's to call people to repentance because if they stay living in their sin, it will destroy their life, and we love them. And notice, back in Matthew 18, notice what comes next. After verse 20, what, what does Jesus tell? He tells a parable, a common parable you're probably familiar with, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Look at verse 21. Notice the connection between verse 21 and verse 15. Remember verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. All right, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Every time. Every time. Every time you confront and they repent, forgive them. Even if it's the 10 millionth time of them doing the same thing again. But... What happens if you confront them and they don't repent? What if you go to them and confront them about their sin and you do so lovingly, but they say, I don't want to hear you. Get out of my face. What do you do? You go to step two, verse 16. Verse 16 is step two. Smaller step. That We're going to deal less time with step two because it's basically step one with a couple more people. 
He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if it were me doing the confronting of somebody and they didn't listen the first time, maybe I'd take two deacons with me. Sydney, Rod, we're going to go. We're going to do this. Um, I'm just springing that on you. Um, but, but we're going to go do that. Um, I take two or three along. I take two or three along. The point is, it's multiple people. This comes from Deuteronomy 19, um, verse 15, that says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Simply, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. It's easier for someone to ignore the pleading of one person to repent than two or three people. It's easier for them to reject that. But you get two or three people calling them to repent. They've got to reject two or three people at the same time. If the sinner does not listen to two or three people, you move on to step three which is the rest of the passage, 17 through 20. Step three. You move on to what has traditionally been called church discipline, or you may know it as excommunication. That's the word that probably people know more than church discipline. It's an idea that if you're not Catholic, you might not think it's in the Bible, um, but it is. I remember in high school, um, my, my history teacher um, got divorced while I was a student, and she was excommunicated from the Catholic Church for that, because very often in the Catholic Church, I mean, if you get divorced, they'll excommunicate you on the spot. They won't work through Matthew 18. They won't do anything. They'll just say, all right, you're out. You got divorced. You're out. No more. All right, that's not right. But I remember hearing that and thinking, those Pharisees, what's wrong with them? You don't kick people out of church, because I assume that's what church discipline is. It's kicking, out of, it's kicking people out of church. It's not. While I don't think you excommunicate someone on the spot for divorce, the idea of removing someone from membership in the church is clearly in the Bible. You, you, you might have never heard of such a thing, though. This, this idea is actually in our church bylaws. Um, so I have a copy of our church bylaws here. Um, Article 6, Section 3. Members are removed from the enrollment of this church by one or more of the following. A, death of an individual... B, request of letter from another church. C, exclusion by action of this church. There's a star by that, noting there's another note at the bottom about it. The star says, should a member become an offense to the church and to its good name by reason of immoral or unchristian conduct or by persistent breach of his or her covenant vows or non-support of the church, the church may terminate his or her membership by a majority vote of those members present but only after due notice and hearing and after faithful efforts have been made to bring such a member to repentance and amendment. That's Matthew 18 in our bylaws right there. It works through that process right there. Historically, Baptist churches have practiced what's known as church discipline. They have. Our church actually did it in the early days. If you have that history book that Dolores Pierman put together several years ago, um, you read back in the very early days, and, um, and, and they would like, I mean, if you didn't show up for church on a Sunday, they'd say, you got to come to church conference and give an excuse for why you weren't at church last week. And if your excuse wasn't very good, you're out. All right, we don't do that. We don't do that in any circumstances. Um, I don't know why they did it back then, but that's not what we do. But somewhere in the last 100 years, most churches stopped doing such a thing. They stopped practicing church discipline, what Jesus teaches here in Matthew 18. As we moved into a day where we don't want to offend anybody, as we moved into a day where you judge success in church based on how many people you can get into the building, the last thing you want to do is remove members 
from, from membership when that's how you measure success. It's counterintuitive to do such a thing. Thankfully, though, there is a resurgence of it happening in the last 20 years or so. But it's often not received well by churches for one of two reasons. Either it is foreign to the congregation, so they see it as unloving, or the pastor comes in really passionate. Um, a young guy like me comes in who's just got out of seminary and learned all about church discipline, and he comes in and he tries to kick out every person in the church that has any hint of sinful lifestyle, and that's not how you do it. That's not right. So what is step three? Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is the two or three witnesses that you took along in step two, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Traditionally what happens is if the person will not repent when two or three people come, it is brought before the intention of the church. The church calls the person to a meeting of the whole congregation, typically a church conference or a business meeting, and calls them to repent. If the person still refuses, remember, it's easy to resist one person. It's really hard. It's harder to resist two or three people. But if you have to resist, you know, 50 people in a church conference, that's really difficult. You call them to repent. If they still refuse, then a vote takes place to remove them from membership in the church. Not because we hate them. Not because we want to kick them out, because church membership, remember, is the affirmation that this person is a born-again believer with the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And if they will not repent of their sins, that after continually being urged to do so, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit is not in them, and they aren't born again, they aren't saved. God has no sin within him. So if you have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within you, you will not be able to resist his conviction forever. You won't be able to do it. Thus, if you're not saved, if there's evidence you're not saved, you cannot be a member of Christ's body. You can't do it. So the church removes that affirmation of their faith. Verse 18, I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right call back to what we read this morning, Matthew 16, um, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the, almost the same wording there. If they will not listen to the church, what does Jesus say to do? He says, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Not in the way the world treated Gentiles and tax collectors. No, think about how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. What did he do? Well, he didn't disassociate from them. He didn't, you know, shun them and say, get out of my face. No, he, his relationship with them, though, was different than his relationship with his disciples. It was different. His disciples were inside the kingdom. They were the ones that he spent his life with. He, they're the ones he um, taught the secrets of the kingdom to. The Gentiles and tax collectors, um, he, he was seeking to see them redeemed and saved. They were not inside the kingdom. They were outside of it. An excommunicated member from a church, does, it doesn't mean they can't come to church. So, so don't hear that. They, they can still come to church, even though usually if they've been removed from membership, they will not come to church anymore. Church discipline is not kicking people out of the church. They're still free to come. Nobody stands at the door to keep them out on a Sunday morning, except maybe in a rare scenario where like a, a child molester was, was excommunicated or something. We probably want to have some guard with them. They're free to continue to come. They're just no longer treated as though they're saved. 
They're no longer treated as though they're saved. They're treated as though they need to repent or they will go to hell. They're treated as though they have not come to saving faith in Jesus. They're encouraged to not take the Lord's Supper anymore. Verse 18 through 20, this is a congregational act. This is a congregational act. Jesus applies that binding and loosing language to the whole church this time. The first time it was just to Peter, now it's to the whole church. He's speaking to everybody. Church discipline is not just something the pastor can do himself. Um, Some seminary students need to learn that um, because they come right out of church and they start trying to do church discipline like their first day in the door, and it's just disastrous for them and for the church. It's not even something that the pastor and the deacons can do. It's not that. So uh, I cannot come to the deacons at a deacons meeting and say, all right, here's five people. We need to remove them. Let's do it. Do I have your support? No, that's not how it is. No, it's a congregational act. Verse 17 says, tell it to the church. That is, tell it to all the gathered people. Tell it to them. So, and, and then the congregation does it together. So let's work through the process. Step one, um, I go and confront someone about their sin, and they refuse to repent. Step two, I take Rod and Sydney along with me. We go to the person, and we confront them, and they still don't repent. So step three, I bring it before the church. Uh, I bring them before the church and say, These people need, this person needs to repent, or, they, or, or, they're, um, or they're not obeying Jesus, and they still refuse to repent. And so in conference, I say, all right, we have to um, say that we can no longer trust that this person is a believer in Christ, has been born again by the Spirit of God, and so they must be removed from membership. So um, we're going to take a vote whether or not we should remove them from membership. So let's say in that scenario, only 10 of the 40 people there voted yes to remove them from membership. They would stay a member because it's a congregational act. Even though uh, I think we'd be in the wrong there, but even though, it's a con- even though they have refused and refused and refused, it's a congregational act. The congregation has to be together on it. This is actually what verse 20 is about. Verse 20 is a verse of the Bible that is so often used out of context. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Um, connected to everything we just read. We, we don't cookie cutter that off and post it on our wall in our house to mean something that it doesn't. No, we, how, how's that often taken out of context? Well, we have a Bible study, and only, you know, one person shows up for it. Well, you know, the Lord's here with us because we're gathered in his name. I mean, that's true. That's just not that, what that verse is talking about. No, it's, it, it, it's about church discipline, verse 20 is. It's about doing this very hard act. When you join together, he says, when you join together to um, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, when you join together to do that, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. You will feel like you're not loving someone even though you are when you do that. You will fear what, may, what the fallout of that may be. Is he going to come back next week and you know, punch the pastor in the face during church? Like, Is that going to happen? You will weep and mourn over that, and you should. But what does Jesus tell you? I'm, I'm there with you. I'm among you. When, when you gather together to do this, I'm with you. I support you. Uh, you. You're not alone here. You haven't done anything wrong. You've done what I commanded you to do, even though it's hard. So let's conclude asking the question, what's the purpose of church discipline? What's the purpose of doing this? 
Um, I want to give you five reasons. And I pulled these reasons, not the explanation, but I pulled these five reasons from a book on church discipline by the same guy who wrote the Rediscover Church book that you're reading. Um, the five reasons for church discipline are this. Number one, to expose sin. To expose sin. Sin does not remain covered up. It must be exposed. And we're the light of the world. We are meant to expose darkness because sin is a cancer in a church. And just as you hope to catch cancer early so you can survive it, you must catch sin before it ravishes the church. Secondly, we do church discipline to warn sinners, to warn sinners. It is a compassionate call to sinners to turn and avoid the coming judgment. We discipline because we love people. Some, uh, sometimes love is hard. Love is not always easy and puppies and rainbows. Sometimes it's gritty and difficult. Thirdly, we do church discipline to protect the church. Just as I said, sin is a cancer. It will destroy the church if it's not dealt with. If you know of a church that is really unhealthy and always fighting, it's probably because the cancer was not caught a long time ago and it spread to every branch of the church. Fourthly, we do church discipline to present a good witness for Jesus. To present a good witness for Jesus. Whether we like it or not, the world looks at the church to see the reputation of Jesus. They do that. So it came out a couple of years ago um, that Southern Baptist churches uh, for years have been harboring child abusers. If you remember that, that happened in 2019. That's, that's one of the reasons we now have to do a training for um, nursery workers that I mentioned this morning. The world was right to call out Southern Baptist churches for that. that. That child abuse happened in churches and the church did nothing about it. And now they're being called on it and they're just, their reputation's ruined. The church should have um, disciplined to those people. They should have called them to repent, but they often didn't. Because I know Joe, uh, I know Billy, I, I know Terry. Yeah, they've made some mistakes, but he, they're not a criminal. They're not criminals. Well, they're also not a Christian if they can abuse children for year after year at church and never feel godly sorrow and repent. So they shouldn't be a member of the church and they should be prosecuted for that. We don't just sweep it under the rug. Church discipline protects the witness of Jesus. Finally, church discipline is done to save sinners. To save sinners. That's the ultimate goal of church discipline. It's that the person, it, it, it's that if the person is saved, they will finally repent after all the pleading and, and that, that they will finally come back and turn back to Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. I told you we'd jump there. This is the other passage in scripture about church discipline. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. You're going to see a biblical example of, of church discipline happening here and it being for the good. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to start out. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? 
Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, that is Paul seeing a very crazy circumstance in the church, calling for an even deeper situation of discipline than Jesus did in Matthew 18. Paul tells the church, purge this man from your midst. Purge him from your midst. He's committing a sin that pagans don't even tolerate. And we know at some point, the man did repent. They did this. They carried out what Paul told them to do. And at some point, the man did repent. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2. Just a few pages to your right. Paul probably wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two um, 1 Corinthians was probably his second letter of the four. 2 Corinthians was probably the fourth of the four. We know that because within the books he mentions writing other letters to them. Um, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6 through 10. Um, actually, we'll start in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, referring to what they did to this man. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, bring him back into membership. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of of Christ, so that we, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul tells the church now, restore him to membership. He repented. He's truly born again. He's proven that. So what happened in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul said, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that finally happened. His flesh was finally destroyed. He was finally able to repent and turn back. That's the goal of church discipline. That's the goal of calling people to repent. The goal is that they would repent. And if they don't know Jesus, that they would finally realize they're not saved and actually turn to him and be saved. This happened with a friend of mine, a friend of mine in Louisville. Um, I worked with him at, at Verizon. Um, he's, he's a good friend of mine. He and I text probably every day. Um, he went to seminary. Um, he attended Adrian and I's church. But um, there came a point when his life just got really off track. I mean, really off track. He was being unfaithful to his wife um, in, in very bad ways and um, ways I won't go into. But um, after months of pleading, pastors and members pleading with him, repent, turn to Jesus, he kept doing what he was doing. And finally, our church had to discipline him. I wasn't there anymore. I was here already at Mount Zion, but, but they had to discipline him. They had to remove him from membership, and, and him and his wife's marriage was, was close to collapse, but his wife decided, no, I'm going to hang on, and I'm going to stick with him. And so they got help. And in the midst of all of that, him being disciplined by the church, him being removed from membership, he finally realized he wasn't actually saved. And months later, they, they went to a different church. They left our church and went to a different church, Months later, I got to see the video of his baptism. He came to Christ, and he got to stand at his baptism for about 10 minutes and just share the whole story of 
um, what had happened with his struggle and, and all the things that he had battled with and all the things he had um, turned to and all the sins he had committed and how finally he repented and um, was saved and he got to then be baptized in the joy of that. That's the goal of this. It's not to kick people out of the church. It's not to be mean. It's not to be rude. It's to call people to be saved. All of this happened because the church loved him enough to challenge him and call him to repent. Church discipline is hard, but it's a necessary thing to do. It's a necessary thing to do. It's hopefully not a common thing that happens. It hopefully never happens, but sometimes it has to. Our church in Kentucky practiced it, but I only saw three cases of church discipline my five years there. It was a much bigger church than this. Hopefully it's not something that has to happen ever or regularly or commonly. Hopefully it never goes past step one of you confronting someone privately and them repenting. But we must regularly practice step one. We must regularly confront people privately when they sin and call them to repentance and hold them accountable to the faith they profess. Part of loving one another is confronting one another and leading each other to repentance because that is what's best for us. But also... We should seek to live so sensitive to our own sinfulness so that no one ever has to confront us. We just repent and apologize immediately. This is a very difficult task called church discipline. Let's pray. Father, some things in the Bible are hard to look at. They're hard to um, follow. They're hard to carry out. They're hard to even stomach. Lord, the thought of the, the few times in my life that I have um, gone to someone privately and had to confront them in their sin, it is one of the most uncomfortable experiences in human life. But, Lord, it has to be done in love. Love is not always easy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to, to, to do step one, to go to people and confront them when they sin. Not when they fail, not when they mistake, not when they spill milk but when they intentionally look God in the face and say, I don't care what you have to say, Lord, we must call them to repent if we love them, that we may say that sinners may be saved through that. In Jesus' name, amen.